Welcome, everybody. Tonight we are going to continue Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. I will give a little recap at first, and I don't want to sound redundant from what Pastor Kyle said, but, you know, when you don't teach back-to-back, and you don't always know what the guy before you is going to say, and so you prepare, you pray, and you settle with what you have, and, and then you come and you listen, and go, oh, man, that's going to be some of that stuff's in my teaching. Uh, so I hope not to sound too redundant, but it's also interesting how much you can find out about people in the Bible just by searching uh, their name. So I found out a little bit of stuff about Titus. Uh, He must have been a strong and faithful Christian and leader as he was directed by Paul to make big decisions in the churches of Crete. We'll hear more confirmation of his leadership in a couple weeks when we go through Titus 2 when Paul gave him certain things to say to the church. And then he said, to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So clearly Titus was a leader in the church. Galatians 2, we read that Paul brought Titus with him to Jerusalem, no doubt in part, to increase his stature among the brothers. Second Corinthians, we see what kind of person Titus was and the authority he had as Paul boasted about him, saying, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. And then he commented how the Christian church viewed, Corinthian church viewed him because they received him with fear and trembling. Titus also brought Paul comfort in Macedonia. Again, 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, we read that after seeing the sacrificial giving that the church in Macedonia did for fellow believers in Jerusalem, Titus seemed to have started the same collection in Corinth. This tells us that Titus had great initiative, especially when he saw a need. I think there's application for us also. When we see a need, what do we do? We should pray about it. Ask the Lord what we can do, and ask our pastors what we can do. If you remember in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we read that the believers had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, of course, we must be discerning because I don't think God wants us to sell everything we have and become homeless. But what do we cling to so desperately in the face of any perceivable needs of fellow believers in the church. I'm also not saying that if we see a need that we tell the pastors that they need to do something about it because they certainly can't do it all. What else about Titus? He was like-minded with Paul and was appointed by the churches to travel with Paul on his mission of taking up collection for the saints and was Paul's partner and fellow worker for the church's benefit. This is, in a sense, Paul's taking Titus under his wing and training or developing him for the ministry. We can easily overlook this and think that Titus was just someone who joined Paul, but it was much more than that. It must have been if he wrote one of the books in the Bible. I think there's also something very important for us to see here too. Whether male or female, future leaders need to be developed. It doesn't just happen. So if you consider yourself a leader, you might consider who you might help raise up. Our Sovereign Grace Network of Churches does a wonderful job at this. They put out a monthly email, anyone can subscribe to it. It gives updates around the world of what they're doing, but it also regularly describes the purposeful and intentional training and raising up of future leaders, even from the late teens or early adulthood. This also includes the wives of potential pastors because they recognize both the husband and the wife need to be in it together. 
So as we read these passages in our text, we must first put the verses in their proper context. This is the early church and it is just being formed and needs direction how to operate. God knows and requires this, and this is why in part he first raised Paul up to where he was so he could help train others. Was there disorder in the churches of Crete? I think it might be safe to say to some degree, yes, because we heard last week that Paul told Titus that he was going to stay in Crete, that he might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Why is this important? First Corinthians, we read, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And all things should be done decently and in order. This means that the young churches need to be properly governed and established and shown how to operate, just like today. We all know what can happen when a group of people get together for a common purpose, but have no leadership. People can start to go out in all kinds of different directions. In the book of Zechariah, the prophet says that without a shepherd to guide and lead the people, they will just wander like sheep. Because Paul is directing Titus on the order of the church, before I read our verses tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit about the importance of the church. Kyle touched on this last week also. Actually, I'm going to talk a good, good deal about the church. <clears throat> this is a topic that not only is greatly neglected, but also misunderstood by many professed believers. And if anyone doesn't think Paul doesn't hold to the seriousness of the physical church, he says this in 1 Timothy, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one should behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I would be in agreement with church forefathers who would say that generally speaking, there is no salvation outside of the church. John Calvin says this, since the church is Christ's kingdom, and he reigns by his word alone, there can be no hope for the forgiveness of sins nor salvation outside of the church. The Westminster Confession of Faith also states the visible church, that's the building, is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Of course, ordinary here is not talking about people who come to faith on their deathbeds or some other rare instance like the thief on the cross because we know he was saved. But I think we would probably agree he wasn't joined to a body of believers when he was living. The church is the means that God uses to bring his glory into the nations. The whole Bible is in a sense about the church. The spiritual church, yes, but also the regular gathering of God's people. If that is true, then to neglect the church is to neglect God. Certainly, there can be no salvation if God be neglected. This is why we must be committed to a local body, serving it with our time, talents, and money. And so if a person doesn't believe in the importance of the church, Kyle mentioned this too, they really have a lot of pages to rip out of their Bibles. One, Romans 10, we know this, belief and faith come from hearing, and this hearing comes from someone preaching in a church. We might even say that the first semblance of the church began in the Garden of Eden. 
God spoke directly to Adam and Eve, but they were insubordinate. And as a result, they were cast from God's presence. Now, I admit that I am in the minority on this, and I have no problem if anyone wants to disagree with, with me later, but I would even say that they were excommunicated. They actually fit the profile for some of the verses we're going to read in a minute. They're also a picture of all who would be cast from God's presence for unbelief and disobedience. This shows the importance of having proper governance in the church because it is a God-ordained authority. Those who don't submit to it and disobey the authority of the church or its elders are refusing to submit to God. Now, I don't mean every whim of every pastor's direction, but only that which is listed in the Bible or relative to what God ordains in his word. Obviously, the Bible cannot list every single thing or incident that can occur or can't spell out in detail everything on the order of the church. But as these things relate to what God has said, even if we disagree with some of these things, we must be in submission to what our God-ordained elders say. It might be infant baptism or believer baptism. How often do we receive the Lord's Supper, hymns or contemporary songs, or any other number of things? Again, we can talk about these things and discuss our beliefs with our pastors, but in the end, whichever church a person commits themselves to, they must respect the authority of that church and not be insubordinate towards the church. With that in mind, let's see what was going on in the church in Crete. And remember, these verses are directly related to what Kyle spoke on last week. Those verses he spoke on don't sit independent here. Our verses are here and so on. They're all related and connected. We know they are because verse 9 where he ended ends with and also rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Why? Verse 10. For, could also be because, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Tell us how you really feel, Paul. <coughs> Do you notice the contrast here between these verses and what Kyle spoke on last week? First, Paul told Titus to put the church in, into order and appoint elders. He then gave quali qualifications for the men who would fit that bill and will do just that. Paul saying, be careful who you appoint to lead the churches in Crete. Why be careful? The first word in our verse tells us why. For, or like I said, because there are many. That means in the church or who might seemingly be influential, 
who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Be on guard, Paul is saying, that those people cannot get appointed to run the churches or be in leadership positions. Paul says they are insubordinate. That means they're not submissive and are disobedient and unwilling to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're uncooperative, have a defiant attitude towards those in authority, shaking their fist. To be clear, that doesn't mean we are insubordinate if we disagree with how things are done in the church. It's where we allow that disagreement to take us that matters and is important. That's also why if we have any disagreements, whether in the message that was preached, Pastor, I always thought that verse, those verses kind of meant this, right? Uh, or order in the church, why do we do things this way? Or something else that we take it to the pastor and talk to them and not let it fester or become like that little pebble in our shoe that just irritates more and more over time. Nothing healthy can come from that. So they are empty talkers and deceivers. Not only do they not have anything edifying or valuable to say, but they also lead others in their, into their delusions and wayward thinking. Paul then adds, especially those of the circumcision party. That could mean Jewish people who are outside of Christianity and trying to, sub to subvert it by telling them they were wrong. But most commentators believe it was Jewish converts who professed faith in Christ but taught the necessity of observing the Jewish law together with faith in Christ. Remember, it's never Jesus and. It's always just Jesus. And that may have included circumcision, the observance of other ceremonies of law, teaching that the freedom they had in Christ was a license to sin, or that they had to follow dietary laws and rules and regulations. Paul is not one to mince words, though, is he? What does he say next about these type of, types of people in verse 11? They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. To silence is to put a muzzle on and shameful gain means it was a disgraceful profiting gain or an advantage they were seeking. Now, of course, we know there's no tone when we read the Bible. Just like when we text somebody, right? The tone is usually on the receiving end. But when Paul says, they must be silenced, do you think it was a meek and passive statement? Like, Titus, if you don't mind, if you can kind of get around to it, can you make sure you silence them? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure Paul meant, they must be silenced. He is not afraid or hesitant to speak sternly into anyone's life. And he's saying the same for Titus. There's a lesson here for us also. Yes, we must be gracious and humble and speak the truth in love. But there may be times when we have to be more forceful or stern. If anyone has kids or grandkids and the child is running into the street in front, in front of a car that's coming down the road, would we just meekly say, hey, would you please stop? No, we would scream out, stop, because their very life is in danger. And so it is with the souls of many who listen to false and deceiving doctrines from seemingly influential people who don't care about the souls of others, but only for their own shameless gain. They must 
be silenced. Something to remember here also, yes, this verse is for all of us, but first and foremost, it is directed to the elders or leaders of the church. Paul did not write this letter to Doug Pearson or to Paul Chubb or Steve Brunig. He is writing it to Titus for instruction on how to order the church. Now, that doesn't mean someone in the congregation can't say something also, but it does mean that first and foremost, the responsibility for silencing destructive and false teaching must be brought to the attention of the elders because only they have been given God-ordained authority over the church and its people. So what does the average lay Christian do then if we hear something? Well, God has given us all discernment and wisdom. And we don't go running to the pastor every time we hear a song that we don't like. But we can speak to the person. We can listen to what they're saying. And if it seems, seems more along the lines of some type of false teaching or destructive teaching, we should bring it to the attention of our pastors. These people are upsetting whole families. This hints at the fact that they were going into people's homes and trying to deceive or win them over to their way of thinking through their unusual interpretations and clever arguments. They were praying, P-R-E-Y, praying on the people's readiness to accept anything that appeared to make life easier and more enjoyable. Influence, as we know, can be a very tantalizing thing because with it comes power and control. A person who has these traits can shape the course of many lives for eternal glory or eternal destruction. The Jim Jones tragedy in Jonestown in the late 70s, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas in the early 90s, and even Charles Manson, whose cult had religious overtones to it in the late 60s, are just a few of the many examples that are out there, people that have influence and can shape the course of people's lives. Cults or false religions today, although they may not result in mass murder or suicide, are no less dangerous because they give the appearance of religion and kindness and sound teaching, but they are actually sending their people to hell. They are right under our noses and disguise themselves as some of the biggest religions or denominations in the world. Steve mentioned some of these false teachers by name a couple weeks ago. There are many Christians who are influenced by teachers who sound good, have charm, and must be telling the truth because it just seems so nice. Many are just wolves in sheep's clothing, though. Because they are so highly esteemed or popular, some believers refuse to stop listening. A number of years ago, my wife got invited to see one of these people that Steve mentioned and hear her talk. I Googled her and listened to some of the things she said, and some of it was good. And some of it wasn't. And so I asked her not to go, and she didn't. But, Doug, someone might say, what's so bad with just listening to some of these people or reading some of their books? I'm pretty strong in the faith. I don't think that will affect me. Let's see if the Bible has something to say about that. Revelation 13, John tells us this. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, 
saying, who's like the beast and who can fight against it? It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It performs great signs. And by the signs that it is allowed to work, it deceives those who dwell on earth. This is why sound biblical teaching must be followed. Now, someone might say these verses are speaking only to unbelievers who are just simply being duped. The problem is there are some in the church who fall into that category. Listen to what Jesus says also in Matthew 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. This is again why everyone we listen to and everything we read must be viewed through the lens of Scripture. And if it doesn't line up, we must be willing to cast it aside. Why is this? Because what Scripture says, God says. There's two amazing verses here, Romans 9.17 and Galatians 3.8. The Scripture is actually spoken of as if it is God or divine. As one theologian said, to reject the Bible's authoritative call is to damn one's soul for eternity. This is also why Charles Spurgeon said we need to cling to the divine authority of Scripture with a death grip. So shameful gain. Gain here, as I said, can mean both for advantage or for profit. They were motivated by greed, whether that was for money Uh, status or anything else. The same still holds true today. We know that. I did a quick Google search of false teachers, and I was amazed at how long the list was and the names that were on it. And not that we can immediately trust anything we find on the internet, but it is a good starting point for a conversation with our pastors or other mature believers. One easy way to identify these false teachers, again, Steve talked on this, is that they don't want to talk about sin, or they say, people are just fine, because God is love. And he will just joyously, joyously welcome them all into his kingdom, regardless of how they live their lives. That's a lie. Paul regularly speaks on the dangers of these people who seek gain from false teaching. Most of us are familiar with the 1 Timothy 6 verses of those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, on its face, this is true for all of us. But in context... Paul is talking to Timothy about false teachers in the church and their desire for shameful gain, just as he is to Titus in our verses. And as a quick side note, the emphasis on 1 Timothy is on the desire and love for money, which infers this all-in, passionate, longing type of attitude to get as much money as you can. It is not talking about working hard, making money, which can then be used to bless God's kingdom, as there are rich Christians who serve the kingdom well, which is entirely biblical. The focus is always what we do with whatever God gives us, big or small. Why is it so important to be aware of this? First Timothy goes on to say it is through this craving for money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. P-A-N-G-S, pangs, 
It can also be translated that this love for money can plunge a person into ruin and destruction. We don't want that. Verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Commentators believe that Paul is quoting this line from a well-known poet in Crete who was also known as a prophet and even was lifted up to some type of divine status by some. Even today, it still holds true that if someone were to say that you are a Cretan, it's never in a good sense, but always in a derogatory sense. Paul says Titus is to rebuke them sharply. Why? What is the purpose of that rebuke? Is that so we can be the rebuker in the church? That's me. I'm the rebuker. Anybody got something bad to say? Call me. No. Restoration is always the goal. That they may be sound in the faith. That is the purpose. As one commentator put it, Christian meekness is not a cowardly passing over of sin and error, but the sharpest reproofs or rebukes must be done. And they must aim, their aim should be the good of the person being reproved or rebuked. Another commentator said the ungodly cannot carry a false sense of peace with them into the next world and still be saved. This is why they must be sharply rebuked. Better that their false peace should be disturbed and rattled in this life than their false peace should cease and be shown for what it really is when they stand before God. It will be too late for them and shown to be no peace at all. We will see later in Titus 3 that this rebuke of a person cannot go on forever, though, because Paul says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. I think I'm teaching on that, too, so it's going to take some work. Paul then brings up Jewish myths and commands of the people, and that devoting themselves to these will only turn them away from the truth. What were these myths and commands? Wouldn't it be great if at this point Paul gave us a nice little list? He doesn't. We don't know exactly what it was, possibly the observance of Jewish rituals and ceremonies, adherence to Old Testament dietary laws and regulations and the like. Paul does mention these myths elsewhere, though. Back to 1 Timothy. Paul tells Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Imagine that was happening back then too. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what about the commands of the people? And the Greek command here, it means a command, injunction, or order. And it's the same word that Jesus uses in the Gospels when he talks about following the commandments of God. That is not, that is not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the commands or traditions of men that are added 
to what God's word says. Jesus says this about the Pharisees and the commands they taught that are not in the Bible. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. We see an example of this in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark where the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus why his disciples broke the tradition of the elders simply because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. Jesus answered them, why do, you, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? That could be the Jewish myths and commands. Jesus continues, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. He calls them hypocrites and says it's not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles them. It's what comes out. This defiles a person. For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. In Mark's gospel, it adds that there are many other traditions that they observe. Then echoing Isaiah 29, Jesus says, this, people's, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Today we see an example of the commandments of men in the Roman Catholic practice of Lent, where the church says it's a sin to eat meat on Fridays during this time, which has absolutely no biblical basis. Or some Seventh-day Adventists who say eating pork, other refined foods, or consuming wine or caffeine are a sin and therefore forbidden. Paul has clearly asserted in other places that if a person is born again through faith in Christ, then the ritual purity and ceremonies that they're talking about have no meaning. Colossians 2, Paul says to the church, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That was a severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence for religious reasons. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, nor worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and not holding fast to the head who we know is Jesus. Paul then adds, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch according to human precepts and teachings. Paul couldn't be any clearer. The Christian is no longer under the Mosaic covenant. We are not obligated to observe Old Testament dietary laws, festivals, holidays, or special days as prescribed in the Old Testament. These can be grievous errors for anyone who thinks that by following them, God is somehow more pleased with them or that it reflects positively on their eternal state. Although it may affect their eternal state, just not in the way that they think it does. Now, on to our last two verses. There are a couple things for us to notice here. First, Paul is going to describe two distinct groups of people, true believers and unbelievers. He makes a stark contrast between the two that I would say the whole Bible makes. Second is the dramatic description he makes of unbelievers. Again, it's also important to read these two verses in context or contrast to the prior two verses. 
to the pure, that's the first group, and describes us as believers, and it's also in context for the elders and what uh, an elder should be. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, that's the second group, nothing is pure. And here's his dramatic description of Cretans, but also the unbeliever. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So pure here means clean, pure, unstained, blameless, innocent, guiltless, and upright. It's the same word Jesus uses in John chapter 13 and 15 when he says that his disciples are completely or already clean. This is our status before God Almighty because of our faith in Jesus. Now we know it's not anything in or of ourselves that got it, but it is the righteousness of Christ that we have been given or imputed to our account when we truly believe. That being said, it is truly us now. Some have a hard time accepting this as if this righteousness we are given is now somehow separated from us. Yes, we have this robe of righteousness, but it's not really me. It is us. We weren't just given something that we can put on or take off. We have been born again. If the Bible didn't make that incredible statement, there might be an argument there, but we have been born again. The old has passed. That's the definition of who we once were, the defiled and unbelieving. And behold, the new has come. That's the pure. Our status and definition of who we are has now been changed forever. God now sees us as his precious children. Sometimes that's hard to believe. Good, worthy, blameless, righteous, holy, the list goes on and on. That doesn't mean we can't sometimes act in a defiling and unbelieving manner, because we can, because we will still sin. But even then, God never sees us that way. He always looks at us the way he looks at his son. Yes, we still have that sinful nature within us, and we always will have that until we die. And that sinful flesh wants to do nothing but sin. But we also have the Holy Spirit living inside of us who cannot sin. God never sees us in the flesh anymore. He only sees us in the Spirit. The whole Bible regularly makes this contrast between the true believer and the unbeliever. And I would say nowhere are they mixed. You can read Proverbs chapters 12 to 14 and see the stark contrast. Good man, evil man. Righteous and upright, wicked. A wise man, a fool. One who is blessed, a sinner. Book of Ecclesiastes, the righteous, the wicked. The good person, the evil person and sinner. The clean, the unclean. This continues into the New Testament where people are classified as either sheep or goats, the righteous and the sinner. The two categories are never intermixed. This is the same contrast that Paul makes in our verses. So do we see ourselves as God sees us? Again, we're going to sin, we know that. But whether we do or not can have a great impact on our faith and on our walk. And understanding this because 
had nothing to do with ourselves should cause us to worship, love, and serve God with all we are because we know how unbelieving and defiled we once were. Paul then says, to the pure, all things are pure. As I said, this comes on the heels of the verses right before it about Jewish myths and the commands of men. So Paul, I think, is rebuking claims that what a person ate or how they ate it was impure or defiled them, which is what Jewish dietary laws would have said. Going back to 1 Timothy again. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, which is done through false teachers. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected, rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That means unless you're truly fasting for a good sound biblical reason, you can eat whatever you want, whenever you want. Paul then adds that these defiled and unbelieving persons, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I think saying nothing is pure is calling them out for what they were truly, uh, who they truly are, regardless if they're following strict dietary laws or religious ceremonies. This is a harsh definition, but it is an accurate description of those Paul is talking about and of all unbelievers. The Greek here actually means stained or polluted by sin. Their sin warps them to the core of their being, affecting both mind and conscience. Paul is not done with them yet, though. He adds, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Stephen and I were just talking before I started. and said, imagine saying that about any particular person or people group. We would rightfully receive admonishment for that. But these are Paul's words. Any good work here in context points to leading in the church, which is what Paul's emphasis here is. But it's also true that no unbeliever can do anything good or pleasing in God's eyes because nothing they do is done for the glory of God. And if anything is not done for the glory of God, it is done for the glory of self or man, which means it's all sin. So how many today profess to know God but deny him by their works? To say one thing and then to live another way is nowhere to be found in the Bible as a definition of true faith. The Bible gives us many examples of this professing to know God, but denying him by their works. If you remember the parable of the ten virgins, that's one example. They all looked the part, but only some of them did what was required. Those that didn't, they were shut out of the kingdom. Or the man who gave his servants money before he went away. Again, they all looked the part. Some did what was required of them, but one didn't. To those who did, when he returned, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. But to the one who didn't, he called him a worthless and slothful servant and said, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unless we get discouraged and think that everything we have to do 
has to be some huge endeavor for the kingdom, Jesus com comforts his people by saying that even the little things that we do blesses his kingdom. You know these examples. He says, those who gave food or drink, a cup of water in my name, clothing, hospitality to others, are doing it to them just as if they're doing it to him, Jesus. These are just random acts of kindness and service to the Lord. They're not huge endeavors, going on mission trips, or starting churches. God doesn't require that from all his people. He does gift some for those bigger purposes, but most of his people are called to live ordinary, godly lives, and in those lives, glorify him by serving him or serving others in whatever way they can. This should be a comfort to some who say, you know, my body isn't what it used to be, and I just can't serve the way I used to. Or I'm on a fixed income now, and I just can't give like I used to give when I was gainfully employed. God doesn't need or require any of his children to go far beyond their means if they simply can't. What he wants is a heart that is willing to serve him in whatever capacity we can. This dramatic description Paul gives of the unbeliever is also important because Paul is still in context, remember, linking what he's saying here against the qualities an elder needs to have. We heard last week that an elder must be above reproach, not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination, not arrogant or quick-tempered, not a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Paul is making it absolutely clear what the qualifications are for an elder versus what they are not. This is why they must be tested. The state of the church is at stake here. And those that have authority in it must be true, mature believers. And because even a church that has strong elders can be subverted from within the ranks of the congregation, I believe Paul is also giving this harsh but true definition as a warning to the whole church. So they, we, right, will be careful and not naive about the true state of the heart of every believer, unbeliever, young or old. Those are some difficult verses. So that being said, we must never condemn or judge anyone's eternal state, as every one of them, just like we did, needs Jesus. And even the vilest offender in the world might someday become a child of God. So we really need to be careful how we speak about these verses. We don't start a conversation with them. Some people also have a hard time accepting that the kingdom of heaven will be filled with ex-cons, so to speak. But that's what we all are. And if we don't think that is true, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, we would all be in agreement at that point. But then to stifle anybody's pride, Paul immediately adds this, and such or some of you. Which one of these categories can we put ourselves into before we came to faith? If not for the incredible mercy of God reaching down and pulling us out, we would all still be there and lost forever. That's why Paul adds, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There are many in Christianity today who profess to know God and who believe they were washed and sanctified, but deny him by their works, which shows they are ignorant to what true faith is. I believe in God. I believe there's a Jesus. I'm spiritual. I go to church when I can. I'm a good person. That's probably one of the biggest ones. Fill the lips of many who will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks on this when he says, many will seek to enter, but not be able to. Or why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Or to those who said to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? What was Jesus' response? Come on, get in here, get into my kingdom. No, that's not what he said. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The more I read the Bible, <coughs> excuse me, the scariest verses, I think, are not those that speak to the fate of all unbelievers. We know that. But to those who profess to know God. Just like those verses. Revelation 3, Jesus is talking to the church. And those who profess to be believers, he gives a stern warning to them simply because they are lukewarm in their professed faith. He says, because you are neither hot nor cold, both of which are good, you're just lukewarm. He will spit them out of his mouth. And the Greek actually means to vomit them out. This is why knowing what true faith is, is so important. It doesn't come from our opinions or from what those in the media or social media say. It comes from one source, God's word. This is, again, why we must be connected to a local church and strong preaching like we have here at Green Tree. I'm not saying the seriousness of the church has been completely lost, but as the world moves farther and farther into the liberal agenda that plagues us, it will and does affect the state of the church and people's beliefs on the church. That's why we must confront any liberal views of the church or not having to commit and attend regularly with a firm and loving reply of no, that's not true. The Bible would declare that the local church is a must for salvation. And we know there's some who have the mindset who may not deny the seriousness or the authority of the church, but are never committed anywhere because they are constantly seeking for a church, but never finding one. Their response to committing and serving is Something along the lines of, I would if I was, but I'm not, so I can't. That's not a good place to be. And not that anyone is ever going to leave a green tree. But if by chance you know somebody and they're searching for a church, it may take months to find a good church. I always witness the people when I tell them, you should spend four to six weeks at a church before you make a decision. But I'm talking about people who are on a lifelong journey of seeking but never finding. I know it may sound redundant, but the topic of the church is important because the battle is coming. In fact, part of it is already here in parts. God has always stressed the importance of the church. And as I said in the beginning, the Bible is in part all about the church. And some faithfulness, and sadly much unfaithfulness. It started in the Garden of Eden and continued on with God's saving work of calling a people out of bondage in Egypt, which was true slavery but points to our bondage to sin. And it continues today. 
In the Old Testament days, although they didn't have official churches or locations where they would go in the wilderness to hear God's word preached like we do now, they were called to come together corporately and not individually to worship God. Scores of times in the Old Testament, Moses and other leaders were called to assemble, assemble the congregation to hear the preaching of God's word. The church was also never meant for only one class or type of people, though, because even back then there were sojourners or non-Jewish people who were included. God was always calling a people to him, but it was never only about just the Jewish people. Yes, the Jewish people corporately are called the nation of Israel, but in its true sense, Israel refers to those chosen by God who would reign with him now. John Piper puts it this way, it was never God's intention that all who are ethnically Jewish would be saved. Rather, as Paul explains, there has always been a division between physical Israel, that would be corporately, and the true Israel of God, that's God's chosen people, and between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. The promises of God are only for those who are children of the promise. Galatians 2, 3, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We see an example of this in Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestled with God, and God changed his name to Israel not just to institute Israel as a nation, but to point to his true chosen people individually. Then in the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 49, the pretty astounding statement, God says this through the prophet about the coming Messiah. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then in the book of Galatians, Paul concludes the letter by calling God's chosen people Jew and Gentile, the Israel of God. That's us. All true believers are the Israel of God because we are his chosen children of the promise. God sets up and uses the church for this great purpose because God loves the church. And he calls his people to him through it. In the book of Malachi, God says he loves the sanctuary, or we could say the church, and that those who treat it lightly will be cut off from him. That's because those who treat the church lightly are treating God lightly. The prophet uses an example of an unfaithful spouse who divorced his wife and what a grievous offense it was to God. This can also be used as a picture of those who are not faithful to the church. This is part of the message that Paul is impressing on Titus and on the faithful ministers of God's word. Again, the book of Malachi says this about the faithful priests back then but which is also applicable for elders today. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. That's the preaching of God's word with the power of the Holy Spirit. For the lips of a priest or pastor today, I would say, should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction 
from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Quite the description of a preacher of God's word. We as God's children, though, also have a responsibility to lift up and exalt the physical church because God uses the church to bring glory to his name. Faithfulness to the church means faithfulness to God. And although true born-again believers don't have anything to worry about as far as being despised by God or cast away like unfaithful Israel was or all other unbelievers will be, it should affect us in our approach to God how we reverence him, honor him, and serve him. Do we see how this can happen with each one of us individually and corporately as we are committed to the local church? Coming to church is not something we do just because we have to. I hope not. It glorifies God and it shows the world who we are committed to. So next time we don't feel like coming to church or don't ever want to get involved, so we don't have to get involved in everything, right? But ever, with what the church is doing, we should remind ourselves of these great truths and that we are making an impact for the kingdom of God by attending church and serving God through the church. Because through the preaching of God's word in the church and by the work of the Holy Spirit, those who were once defiled and unbelieving, whose minds and consciences were defiled, who were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work, are saved and turned into children of righteousness. Through the church, God's people are also strengthened and encouraged for the work of the kingdom and through the church, that's us, again, individually and corporately, the renown of our King, Jesus Christ, is proclaimed to the world. 